Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Akshath Rati. Most recently, Akshath was a senior reporter for Quartz, where he covered science, energy, and environment. In early 2020, he'll be joining Bloomberg News. Akshath has a PhD in organic chemistry from the University of Oxford and a BTech in chemical engineering from the Institute of Chemical Technology in Mumbai. Akshath tells stories of the people and their ideas tackling the biggest problem facing humanity, and that's climate change. He's also currently working on a book about scaling up climate solutions. Akshath was the first journalist that I've had on the podcast so far, and I really enjoy this discussion. I think one thing I appreciate about Akshat is when you talk to him, you don't feel like you're speaking with someone who's just a communicator, but someone who really is a strategic domain expert in this complex, nuanced systems challenge. He's also just a really nice guy. Akshat Rati, welcome to the show. Hey, nice to be here. I'm so excited for this one. The climate category is so broad, if there even is such a thing, because it's like the everything category and the nothing category. But journalism is such an important piece, and I have yet to talk to a journalist on the show. So you are the icebreaker, the guinea pig, the bravest of the brave, and I'm excited for you to come. So thank you. Hey, I'm a moonwalker, according to this squadcast. Yeah, we use Squadcast for for listeners. We use Squadcast as a for, for these remote episodes. Unfortunately, this one's not in person. And if you don't enter your name, it assigns a random name. And so Akshat's name is Dynamic Moonwalker. So I, I might have to call you that in perpetuity from now on outside of this discussion, if, if that's okay. I'm happy with that. So why don't we just take it from the top? I know uh, until three days ago, you were at court. So maybe let's talk about that. What were you doing there and what's Quartz? Yeah, so Quartz is a business publication that was created by The Atlantic in 2012. So it's seven and a little bit years old. I joined early 2015 and I went in there as a science wrangler. So my goal was to try and bring people who write about science in one form or another from different perspectives because it's a business publication covering all sorts of business topics, and to try and inject a little more rigor in the way that subject was covered. And I did that for about two years, and then had an option whether to go down the route of being an editor full-time or be a writer full-time. And I, I enjoyed writing a little bit too much, and so I didn't want to give that up. And so that's when I sort of figured out that I have to find a beat for myself that would keep me engaged in a more focused way. And it was 2016, end of 2016, Trump had been elected as president. And my editor had asked me a question. He said, you know, hey, this clean coal thing has been in Trump's campaign for quite some time. Do you know what it is? Do people know what it is? And that's what got me started on the climate beat. And before you got started on the climate beat, I mean, is climate always something that you were 
concerned about or when and how and in what capacity did that manifest? I wasn't a climate person. So I trained as an as a chemical engineer and then I did a PhD in organic chemistry. I was a nerd in and out. I, I liked science. I liked math. And when I was doing my PhD, my goal was to try and make a dent in the world of academic knowledge and perhaps find something that nobody had found before, which is the goal of every PhD student. And so I did that and I enjoyed it. And at some point in my PhD, I recognized that my interests were big and broad. I didn't want to do just chemistry or organic chemistry as I was studying for the rest of my life. And I used to write as a hobby. And so after my PhD, I figured out whether if there's a way in which I could turn my hobby into a job. And that's how I became a journalist. Climate change, I think, played a role in my understanding of the world at the background level, all through. You know, I was aware of the problem when I was at Oxford. One of the things that I read which changed my life was the UN Livestock Report, which was called Livestock's Long Shadow. And it talked about how emissions from meat production were greater than all of transportation, which includes cars, planes, ships, the whole lot. That sort of changed my mind as to what what kind of problem we are facing, which is one that we don't always grapple in the way that we should be grappling with it. And so it played in my background as I was going through life, finishing university, you know, getting my first job. And when the opportunity came in 2016, you know, things all came together and it's been a great beat to follow since. Is the PhD to journalism path one that's well-trodden? It's not. And I am actually quite happy that more and more people or more and more PhDs are doing it because I think we bring a un, bring an unusual understanding to journalism just because we've spent a lot of time trying to understand academic science and how it is put together, how the sausage is made. Once you know how the sausage is made, you have a better understanding of what questions you need to ask. And that's been tremendously valuable. When I am covering a subject, I have a intuitive sense, especially if it's a science paper or, or related, about where there might be gaps in the knowledge in the way the science was done. And I'm able to get to those questions much more quickly. And I find that sources are also much more comfortable because they can sometimes talk to me in jargon, knowing that I'm getting what they mean a little more quickly. And and we can then have more in-depth conversations. And you had mentioned that when you came into courts, that one of the things that was necessary on the science side was introducing more rigor. What do you mean by rigor and what was the state of the state when you first started working in courts on this area? I think this is generally true of science journalism across the media, that if you think about subject knowledge expertise, the science beat itself is so in-depth and complex and broad that Its knowledge base, its entire knowledge base of just science, is probably equivalent to all the other subject areas you cover in news. Of course, that is not to say that people will be equally interested in science as they are interested in everything, which is politics and sports and culture. 
But to a journalist who's covering that beat, it is a massive challenge to be able to know how a black hole is formed and what effects it has in the universe to how an atom works inside a battery. It is as different as understanding how the Middle East crisis happened to how the latest Hollywood movie came about. It's completely different bases of knowledge. And so it is a challenge to use science to do journalism. But if you're able to use it, you enrich any story you tell. So say it's a management story about how women in the workplace make a company better. If you were writing that story just based on talking to different people in the area of that expertise, that'll give you only a certain amount of perspective. If you also dig into academic studies about how a large sample of companies where gender proportions have changed has affected their outcomes, you'd be in a much more quantitative space to be able to write about this particular story. Um, But reading those papers or understanding those papers doesn't come naturally to journalists because they are storytellers. And to me, I think combining that storytelling with the understanding of data and science and the methods of science is just a rich form in which we can tell stories. I think all of that makes good sense as a a non-academic one perception that I have that I'd love to get your input on is is that a lot of these academic papers, not only are they long and dry, but they tend to contradict each other. And so how do you know where to put your trust when reading these academic papers, given that the findings seemingly, and if I'm incorrect, please let me know, but tend to be all over the map? That's a good question. And I would say it's actually quite the opposite. So there would be news stories especially if you live here in the UK where we have a very hyper-partisan media landscape that have the same piece of news reported in quite two different opposing ways if you put that context. Science, on the other hand, or generally academic studies on the other hand, they build on each other. And so often a science paper, the way it is structured, is there'll be a long introduction, which will capture everything, or at least everything relevant that has happened in that space before it explains why it is answering a question that is built up on that base of knowledge. And so, yes, academic papers do go and have opposing ideas, but they are all trying to do that in the pursuit of building up a base of knowledge. And In that sense, I would say the news landscape is worse than the academic landscape when it comes to knowledge sharing. But you're absolutely right that academic papers are dry and boring to read. But that's because they're not written for us. They're written for other academics. And I know enough academics who enjoy the process of reading those papers. And that's perhaps where a journalist who comes from an academic world can help translate what are interesting, breathtaking, important pieces of research that are lying in these thick, dense, boring pieces of text on the internet. So this is uh, not the direction I I thought 
I would be taking this discussion, but I guess that's typically the, the way it goes. But when I'm hearing you talking, one thing that comes to mind is that one of the issues in the climate fight right now is that there seems to be a growing skepticism or mistrust in, in science itself. And I think in order to get the general public to hunker down and be supportive of doing the bold things that are required to try to get a better handle on the problem and stop the bleeding, if you will, then we need to have a broader trust of science. And and so I said that as a statement, but my first question is, do you agree? And then if so, are we better served to try to convince people just to trust in science and we're not the experts and to stay out of the way and trust or to build bridges to help maybe connect the dots between these dry academic papers and a language or a format that the general public might be better equipped to understand? So I would challenge you on the fact that you believe that there is more distrust in science. If anything, at least in the 10 years of journalism I have seen and, and being part of, the trust in science has hasn't been higher. Oh, from, from where? Are you talking about in general or from a specific audience? Very specifically in the climate sphere, but also in general. But you're saying the general public's trust in science or the scientists' trust in their own work? General public's trust in science. Okay, keep going. I just wanted to make sure I understood. Yes, you're right that you know the climate movement has had its problems with climate deniers and climate skepticism, perhaps given too much attention. But that phase is kind of on the wane now. So at the COP25 meeting, which is the annual climate meeting that the UN organizes, which is currently happening in Madrid, you had the most, the newest EU climate chief come through. And in his open opening remarks, I think a journalist asked him, asked him a question, or maybe it was just his remarks. He said, the problem with climate deniers is not one I think about or care about anymore. The real problem we now have is the people who do agree on climate change, which is the vast majority of EU countries, but also globally, that we do more on what we do agree is a problem. And so climate deniers and climate skepticism is on the fringe now. That is not to say it is not a problem, but it's just a smaller and smaller problem as we go forward. And that's a good thing. And when you look at where we are and where we need to go and and the need to overall move more boldly, more aggressively, faster, more effectively, et cetera. What is journalism's biggest role to play there? So to me, the biggest problem, if there is one, and I don't think it's fair to say there is one, but if I were to pick what I see as the biggest problem, it is inertia. Humans are, as individuals, but as groups, very stuck in our own ways comfortable in the places that we find ourselves, even if we know that the next destination we might get to might be more comfortable because that journey from going from one destination to another involves disruption. That is not something that our being allows us to very easily agree to. And so in some way, I see the role of journalism to be people who are able to bridge this gap between reality, which is the climate problem as we know it, and perception, which is maybe it's not going to be as bad, maybe it doesn't need as much of an overhaul, 
maybe it's not going to affect my life, maybe it's not going to affect my bank balance. And that, I think, bridging that gap is what journalism has done for all sorts of other problems, but should be doing more for climate change. And any thoughts on how journalism may be able to do that more effectively? I think journalism is probably the most human of the professions in that humans are writing to other humans and humans are messy. And so the way journalism conveys a message from one human to another is also messy. And there are hundreds and thousands and millions of ways of doing it. I think one of the problems that has held back climate action is that there hasn't been enough attention from journalists to a problem of this magnitude and urgency. And that's starting to change. So in what journalism can do for climate, the first thing is to do more and better journalism so that bigger audiences can be reached. And for adults, journalism is their form of education. And this is a form of education that needs to be relevant and proportionate to what the problem is. That would be one. But the second is to be more accurate in how the problem is portrayed, how the solutions are portrayed. And on that, I think there are still major challenges left. We still have people who don't understand the entire climate problem or will pick up on things that make for good headlines. So a good example would be from last night. Here we have a UK election happening on Thursday. And so a lot of political party parties have put their leaders for debates in different publications on different TV channels. On one of those TV channels on the BBC, uh, a Labour MP or former MP was asked a question about climate change. And she said, yes, it's a big problem and we need to address it. While she was answering, the host asked her, will you nationalize sausages? And this is A, an absurd question. B, is completely misinformed to what the Labour MPs' policies have been on climate change. And this is happening on a national television where millions of people are watching. And so there needs to be a, a much more informed journalist who is able to ask the right questions, which are crucial and important if we are to inform the wider public. How much of this do you think falls on the journalists themselves versus the news organizations having bigger research departments, for example, to, to pull from? Could you explain that a little more? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, it's a weird example, but when I sold software early on in my career, I would go in and speak with CIOs and heads of information technology at, at big companies. And I had some expertise of the things I was talking about, but I would have a a sales engineer who would be with me, who was trained as an engineer, but was also customer facing, who had deeper knowledge that could inform. Or another example is like financial advisor, where you have a financial advisor that's the face to the client across their equities, their bonds, their the different asset classes, right? But then they have expertise to pull from within the bank of someone whose only expertise is fixed income and they and they know it cold. And someone whose only expertise is big blue chip stocks and they know it cold. And so is there a similar model that could be or is being applied in, in journalism, especially in an area like climate where it's just so broad that it's impossible for any one person to be the master of every domain? 
It's not. And I think that's because of the constraints of the business model. We'll talk about it later, but I'll be joining Bloomberg News in January. That is the largest newsroom on the planet. And when I say the largest, it has 2,700 journalists. Coming from journalism, that is large. That is really big. Not coming from journalism, that sounds large to me. Oh, that's interesting. For what it's worth. But within Bloomberg, there are 5,000 technologists. So there are 5,000 people who are working on software and computer coding and improvement of the product. But there are 2,700 journalists. Now scale that down to Quartz, which is a global publication, reaches millions of people each month, more than 10 million, closer to 15. It's only 90 journalists. And so that's 30 times smaller than Bloomberg News. And so, yes, if you talk at, at the Bloomberg scale, there is enough expertise within their financial journalism, for example, for the bond market. And within bond market, there are probably five reporters just reporting on a specific bond market in the UK. In courts, that's not the case. We have one reporter who understands bond markets and then one editor who understands bond markets. And if there's a bond market story that applies to a wide audience, they might be able to write it. So if you take that to climate, which is what I was doing when I was at courts, you know, I was one person who was fully dedicated to it. We had two or three reporters from around the world who contributed towards it, but that's about it. That's how much of a resource given to the climate story. When now I'm going to Bloomberg, before I was hired, there were maybe five or six people who were dedicated to climate. By the time I go, it'll be a dozen people, so they'll double the team. But that's about it. So there isn't yet a business model that would support the kind of model that you're saying where we could draw on internal expertise from within our newsroom to be able to tell what is a big story. You bring up business model, which brings up something I've been wrestling with. I mean, even for this podcast, which at some point, I mean, right now it has no business model, but if it wants to be a long, an ongoing concern over the long term, we'll somehow need to figure out how to support itself. And how do you think about business models in, in climate journalism specifically? I worry with ad-driven business models that, to your point before, it even subconsciously will draw people to sensationalism. But I also worry with premium models that it will limit who's going to read this important material. Yeah, and it's a, it's a whole can of worms that we open if we talk about business models and journalism, because one of the biggest problems that we've faced in the last decade or so is that business models with journalism are not working, which is why you are getting what is likely to be a democratic deficit in many countries where the information is not available for people to be able to make the right choices they need to for themselves, but also for their for the places they live in and the countries they live in. Um, broadly, though, what we've ended up with is the free internet, which is completely ad-supported, is shrinking. And that's because there's not enough advertising or quality advertising supporting that kind of journalism. And if you go down the sensationalism route, which many publications have done, it's a race to the bottom, and that's not a good model to be in. Then there's, in the middle, a freemium model, a free plus premium model, where you would be able to access a certain number of articles from a certain publication for that month or that year. And if you want more, you pay. 
that seems to be working and, and lots of publications are doing that, New York Times, Bloomberg. But there's also in that space a model that The Guardian uses where it will keep its journalism for free, but it asks for voluntary contributions from its readers. And it has been able to make inroads because of its depth, its size, its audience that uh, has allowed it to flourish in a difficult space. And then, of course, there's premium journalism, which is completely behind a paywall, and you can only access it if you can pay for it. And that is places like the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal. And yes, that means only people with a certain amount of income or available money are able to access it. But luckily, we have enough across this broad mix for now that we are not completely deficient in the information that we need. Although I do worry what happens to the free publications, whether they can continue to run for long. And when it comes to climate journalism specifically, I know you might have personal biases in terms of which models you like better for yourself, but but do you also have a view in terms of the way you'd like to see the overall industry move or or does a portfolio approach make sense and it's just different strokes for different folks? Yeah, I think one aspect in climate journalism, and this is probably the fourth business model in journalism that I haven't talked, which is not-for-profit supported journalism. And so that has been increasingly growing. You know, U.S. listeners will probably know of ProPublica, which is a completely philanthropy-funded organization that does excellent journalism. In the climate sphere, there are publications like Climate Home. There is Carbon Brief. These are, again, completely funded by philanthropies, and they have added a crucial, important source of information that we've needed. We are also getting to a reader-funded model of journalism. One of the first people who is doing it at an individual level is Emily Atkin, who's an independent journalist who quit her job three months ago to start a newsletter. And just yesterday, she finally has asked readers to pay for her newsletter. And so there'll be a freemium model here where there'll be some issues that'll go out for free, but only people who pay for it will get all of the issues in the newsletter. And so that's also a positive sign that somebody's trying a new form of journalism and I hope it succeeds, but it's a messy place and there is no clear winner. And coming back to something you said before about needing more rigor or more domain expertise from climate journalism, I threw out an idea of having this research department, which you said wasn't going to work. Do you have ideas for how to better foster that? What's the best way to get there? So journalists have depended on science journalists in general, but journalists in general on the expertise of others. And most of the experts are willing to give their time generously to journalists, knowing that we are the vessels through which the stories are told to the mass audience. And so finding ways in which you can reduce the friction between journalists being able to access deep expertise will enrich journalism. And there are places that are trying to do that. So one good example is a website called Climate Feedback. It was started by a PhD student as a way of ensuring that climate journalism is done with keeping facts as much of the story, as part of the story as possible. So what it does internally is it 
looks at climate stories that are trending, that are getting a lot of audience attention. And then it sends out that news story to a huge list of experts, about 300 scientists, to see if they can peer review what is written in that article. And then they publish their analysis saying whether this story is a good story, a bad story, is well-informed, it's not. But it also has that access of 300 scientists who are willing to be talking to journalists. And so if you had a question, you could reach out to them and there would be within that expertise somebody who can answer that specific question you might have about the West Antarctica ice sheet that might be about to collapse. And so that sort of friction that usually exists if I have to cover a story and I have a deadline and within hours I need somebody to be able to tell me whether this particular academic paper I'm reading does actually mean really bad news for the world, I need to be able to tap into somebody who really knows that subject. And to do that quickly will be a service to journalism. Would you also like to see more people like you that have PhDs moving into journalism? Certainly. And I think that's happening already, which is a very good sign. I know among my peers, there are PhD students in publications like The New Scientist and In fact, The Economist, my former science editor, the first job I had in journalism was with The Economist. My science editor at the time, and he's still the science editor there, was a PhD in zoology. And so PhDs like us are getting into journalism, and that's a good thing. So here's an idea, and I can't be the first one to think of this, but if I am, then we get to have this light bulb big breakthrough moment right here on the episode. But one program I've really become enamored with, at least from a distance, is this AAAS fellowship program, which takes PhDs and puts them in a place where they're desperately needed and where they don't typically go, which is in the government, sitting inside senators' offices or at the DOE or places like that. Is there a similar kind of program for journalism? There isn't, but that's an excellent idea. In some way, the Economist internship, which is what I got when I first finished my PhD, was designed for a non-journalist to be taking on a journalism role. So it didn't say a PhD, but it was for non-people who hadn't studied journalism, hadn't done it in in a serious way to come in and get a crash, crash course on how you do journalism. Is that an idea that we just figured out together, which is that somebody should build a AAAS fellowship program for journalism? That would be great. Yeah, but I cut you off by accidentally. Please finish your thought. No, no, I think that that would be a great idea. And if it's an organization or a philanthropy or a rich donor, that I think that translation of expertise that can allow journalism to become better is a good idea. So I want to go back to this whole concept of mistrust, because I said that there seems mistrust in science is growing, and you took issue with that and said, actually, it's going the other way. What about mistrust in journalism? Yeah, so that too, I mean, I was looking at some data recently, is that if you look at professions and trust, scientists and doctors have been historically at the very top, and they continue to be there. Politicians and journalists tend to be at the very bottom. And so when I went from being a scientist to a journalist, I just made the worst leap of trust in public that I could have. Luckily, though, even despite all the disinformation and fake news and attack on journalists, there has been a slight increase in the trust in journalism. And I do not know 
what the study attributed it to or what I will attribute it to. But I do think that in this age where journalists are all on social media and so is the wider public and there can be a direct conversation between public and the journalist, our ability to hold journalists to account has never been higher. And so maybe that is the reason why there has been a little bit more trust in journalism than previously. And we've talked a lot about journalism's role in the climate fight. One thing we haven't talked as much about, at least so far in the discussion, that it would be great to touch on, if you're okay, is just taking a step back. I mean, you've done so much in terms of these long-form, real thought-out pieces about all different aspects of climate change or many different aspects of climate change. But it'd be great to just talk about the problem overall. How are you feeling about it? Are you an optimist? Is it an existential threat? I mean, maybe just describe the problem as as you see it or the nature of it. I see the problem as a big problem, probably the biggest problem that we face in the long term. But that is an aggregate. That's an answer in aggregate. If I were thinking about humanity, then that's true. But very few people think about humanity when the first time they wake up in the morning. The first thing they think about is themselves or their family, or their immediate surrounding. And so climate journalism has to bridge this huge gap, which is this big story that needs to be addressed in big ways and bring it down from time to time to the level of the individual. And that's a, that's a big challenge for anybody doing it. In terms of you know whether I'm an optimist or not, that question is being asked around, and I, I don't know what, the, what a good answer is. I'm just by nature an optimist. I think that's what gets me up in the morning and gets me going. So I don't think there's a choice there for me. I'm just who I am and I pursue it because I feel like there are solutions and we can use those solutions to try and solve a problem. And my goal is to try and find those solutions and tell people about them. Maybe it's because the politicians or the journalists, or there aren't enough people in general reading the academic papers, as you were were talking about before, but there seems to be a wide range of how people actually talk about and frame the problem in their own heads. Some people say, we have 12 years to act. And other people say, humanity is going to be fine no matter what. We're just talking about degrees here. And similar to other diseases, when they come up, it needs to get addressed, but this is not an existential threat. How severe, how urgent do you think the problem is? I think the problem is very severe and very urgent. The way we interpret it is up to us. And there are, given the size of the problem, people can take the kind of route that they feel is the route that they are most comfortable with. If that is a doomsday scenario and that is what gets them going, go with that. If it's a more pragmatic approach towards solving problems and building coalitions do that. I think we've just not done anything to cut emissions for so long that right now there is scope for everybody to come on board, no matter how they approach the problem. There is so much room to try and solve this problem. When it comes to consumers, for example, do you think that consumers should be changing their behavior and do you have confidence that consumers are capable of changing their behavior at scale? I think everybody contributes and consumers are likely to be a small part of the problem because they can only consume what is offered to them. 
And so unless there are climate-friendly options for everything in front of us and easily accessible, consumers won't be able to do very much to be able to move the needle. But there are things that consumers can do right now which they do have access to, and they should be doing those things. So I think it's both. You need systemic change and you need behavioral change. Which might happen first? I don't know. But I think we need both of them to be able to solve the problem. What about market forces versus policy and regulation? Again, I think it's in a place we need both of these. There will be places like the US where there is a, I wouldn't say it's a free market utopia, but it is more free market than not and people prefer to keep it that way and so in that space you you try more market friendly options in other places like in china you might have less market friendly options available to you because of the way the government is structured and the way policies are implemented and so you use the models of higher regulation more government support to get things done i think again it's such a big problem we'll need everything on the table and the solutions will be different in different places. Is it essential that we put a price on carbon? Perhaps. But also, again, we do know that even if we do put a price on carbon, that on its own is not enough. And so, again, it is right now all of the above. And that in some way is actually perhaps an optimistic note that currently we have so many solutions and so many options in front of us that we can choose what fits our particular politics in a particular country. Does it matter what we do in the U.S., given what's happening in places like India, China, and other developing countries? 100%. The goal that finally solves this climate problem is reaching zero emissions. And that means every player, be it a country or a state or a company, and eventually an individual, everybody has to come to zero. And that means the U.S. has to do its part, just as India and China have to do their own. But we also have to make sure that we do it in a way that is fair, because you know, humans, even, even as we are born, we understand fairness, even if we can't speak the language of fairness. And so fairness is built into us humans. And if we don't come up with a solution that is fair, then we won't have a solution that works for everybody. Is it cool if we do a few more of these? Yeah. Okay. Because <laughs> I've got, got a, I could keep going, but I don't, I don't want to beat a dead horse here. But where do things like direct air capture and other forms of carbon removal fit in? Do you think we'll need them? And do you think they'll ever be able to be done at the scale we need in ways where the math works? Yeah, I think we need them. And there is good analysis to explain why we need them. You know, if we had started to cut emissions in the 90s and continued to cut emissions since then, then maybe we wouldn't have needed negative emissions. Maybe we wouldn't have needed to pull carbon dioxide out from the air. But as it stands, we have not, and we have delayed cutting emissions. And that means if we are to avoid climate catastrophe in the form of 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2 degrees Celsius of warming, then we will need to use technologies such as direct air capture, but others that will bring carbon dioxide levels to, to the net zero part that we talk about. Will we be able to scale, scale it up? We've been able to scale up other technologies there is no reason, at least from a technology perspective, that this is not possible. 
it is also from a geological perspective where you, where do you bury the carbon we have plenty of places in the world where we can bury enough carbon to stave off this problem so it's not a technology problem it's more a problem of politics and financing where do things like fission and fusion fit in if at all again it's right now the the question of with nuclear as i understand it is as one of the biggest sources of a zero carbon source of energy we need to do as much as we can to try and extend the life of power plants that we already have and innovate in the space to be able to bring down the cost of building new power plants at the end despite all we talk about safety and risks and worries the thing that has been the biggest challenge for new nuclear power plants is that they are too expensive to build and so if we can find ways in which we can make that cheaper nuclear becomes an option for us to be having in cutting emissions and we need all sorts of options available to us trying to solve a problem with just a handful of technologies means risking not being able to solve the problem at all and what about fusion do you think it'll ever happen at scale i don't know but or even happen at this point the joke goes fusion is the the source of energy of the future will always remain so yep 10 years away in perpetuity yes but things have been different in fusion and if you talk to fusion experts which i have done we have made progress over the last 50 years the sums of private capital in fusion which i reported on last year blew me away that there are companies that have raised more than a billion dollars and there are more than 20 startups around the world that are working on the problem was not something i was aware of before i started reporting on it and so the fact that there is that much interest and that much push from private capital is a signal that this is a solvable problem or is a more solvable problem today than it was 10 years ago how do you feel about the fossil fuel companies i mean again how do i feel does it matter i suppose the perspective i have is that I grew up in India and so growing up in the 90s India was a place that was sort of held back by its socialistic roots which meant slow growth for a long time and that meant lots and lots of people in poverty and not much social mobility with between classes and in the 90s just like China India moved to a more market driven economy and as it did that it relied on fossil fuels to be able to get the energy it needed to run those economies that meant i am doing better than my father did or a lot better than my father did than he did compared to my grandfather and that acceleration that i have seen in my own family happened to millions of other families and i think here in the west people probably don't see that perspective because they haven't seen that kind of social mobility within their lifetime and what it does to the people their surroundings their relatives and their just general quality of life that people in India or China or the developing countries have seen and that has happened on the back of fossil fuels most of those fossil fuels as it happens also were provided by state owned companies So in India coal 
is largely a monopoly run by Coal India Limited, a state-owned company. That's the same story with China and its coal consumption and its coal production. And so when we talk about fossil fuel companies, and I suppose the context of your question is one where oil companies and the way they have changed the conversation through disinformation and delayed action on climate change is a problem, is true, and it's a problem that needs to be addressed. And lots of things are happening in that space. But we should not forget that most of the fossil fuels, even today, are provided by state-owned companies, which means governments are responsible for providing those fossil fuels to their own people. And those governments have done that because fossil fuels have been important in providing the energy we needed for human development. So then how do we balance the issue of energy poverty and the issue of climate change? We are in that time where it is an easier question to answer than it has ever been. In the 90s, energy poverty, the only way you could address it was with more fossil fuel. That's not the case anymore because zero carbon energy sources are cheap and cheaper in many places than fossil fuels. So that question only gets easier as the years go by and we we lower the technology, uh, we lower the prices of solar and wind and batteries. And we will come to a point where the question won't be whether it's fossil fuels or clean sources of energy. It will be clean sources of energy all the time. So given that that's the trajectory we're on, how do you think about technologies that decarbonize fossil fuels at point of emission? They are important and necessary because we have industries and sources of emissions that are not just fossil fuel related that will not be addressed by the technologies that are becoming cheaper. So if you think about the steel industry or the cement industry, those are industries that do not have, as of now, an economically viable option to not produce carbon dioxide. In the case of cement, it's part of the chemistry. That's how cement is made. And so those industries will need ways in which we can trap the emissions they produce and then bury it underground. There are also emissions from sources like aviation, especially long-haul aviation or shipping, probably long-haul shipping, that we don't yet have economically viable options to replace. And so the best way in which we can deal with it is to allow for technologies like direct air capture that can offset those emissions. And so probably goes back to the point I made that right now, all of the above is what we should be looking at. And a similar but different question, what does that mean then as it relates to things like consumer offsets and corporate offsets? They are messy. And I think enough has been written about it recently. And I think that's been a service that journalism has done to show that offsets only work in very specific cases. And the threshold of what is required to make an offset work should be much, much higher than it is for most offsets that are sold in the market. And I think we are seeing corporations recognize that there is a problem in the offset market, which is why companies like Stripe are coming out with support for negative emissions technologies, knowing well that offsets only solve part of the problem if they solve that part of the problem. 
And I think that awareness is partly down to journalists pointing out the real problems in offsets, but also journalists trying to explain what negative emissions technologies can do and how they are a more perfect offset if there was one. I have one more topic on this punch list and then two closing questions, if that's all right. So the, the last one that we didn't talk about is just solar geoengineering research. Where does that fit into all of this, if at all? I think the climate problem should have been thought in the past as a problem of insurance. We understand as individuals living in a society that insurance is key, that we pay a small sum to ensure that we don't end up with a large loss in the future. We buy home insurance, we buy mobile phone insurance. Climate change should have been an insurance problem. We should have recognized that this problem could be much worse than what we think it is going to be. And we should have found a way to insure ourselves against it by reducing emissions, which we didn't. And that is how, in that context, is how we should be thinking about solar geoengineering. It is an extreme step, which will require an extreme amount of agreement among countries that we've never had before. And we should be only taking it in an extreme scenario where the benefits outweigh the harms. But we still don't know what the harms are, and we still don't know what the benefits are. And so in the spirit of insurance, we should be working on that problem and trying to understand those harms and benefits before we use it. I guess one last punchless question I, I didn't ask, which is just if you, for each incremental dollar coming into the space, how do you think about emissions reduction versus removal versus things like adaptation and resiliency? Where, where can that incremental dollar be highest value? Very good question. And I recently wrote an article about adaptation versus mitigation. And it was a fascinating discussion to have with people who've studied the subject for quite some time. I think the again, it's in aggregate, the answer would be that we should try and spend money where adaptation and mitigation can be done together. And there are lots of places where that's possible. So one example is, take Puerto Rico, for example. We had a hurricane that destroyed much of the infrastructure on the island and the neighboring smaller islands. If you were to build an energy infrastructure again, it is better to build one that is zero carbon because you want fewer emissions and one that is more resilient to future hurricanes. And so what Puerto Rico has done, at least in parts, is deploy solar plus batteries. And that is a way in which they can mitigate and adapt going into the future, giving them a solution that will have a longer life. And so where you have a win-win, where you can mitigate and adapt, I think that a dollar is well spent. But purely spending on adaptation without mitigation is futile. If you had $100 billion and you could allocate it towards anything to maximize its impact on this problem, where would you put it and how would you allocate it? $100 billion, which I probably have written about, is just a sum that is so incomprehensible if I had the power to spend it, that I would perhaps hire... Don't say Goldman Sachs. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> people who are much better experts at handling money and understanding this problem and then 
depending on their advice, decide what to do with the money because I wouldn't have an idea where to start. So you take a small amount and put together an advisory board full of cross-functional expertise to help you come up with a plan. That's right. That's right. I've never heard that before. That's actually the most pragmatic answer I've ever heard. It's a cop-out, but it's also the most pragmatic answer I've ever heard. It's probably the right one. Well, one of the most fascinating uses of money that I've seen is Breakthrough Energy Ventures, which is partly Bill Gates's money, but partly all these other billionaires who are putting in, well, not a hundred billion, but a billion, which is still a large sum, not large enough. And the way they're doing it is exactly that. They've put together the star group of people who understand the problem and who are trying to tackle it. And I think that is a sensible way in which you should spend money. And what about for any listener out there that's concerned about the problem and wants to help, what advice do you have for them as they're trying to figure out how to do so? It's a, Again, it's a question that as a journalist, I get asked so many times. From an individual perspective, I say, here are things that will make immediate impact. And there are options that you have, which will enable you to make that impact. First, fly less if you can. So only fly when it's absolutely necessary. Second, give up on, on red meat or all meat if you can, because there are so many better alternatives that are available and it'll do the world a hell of a lot. And third, become more politically active. The reason climate has struggled to be solved is it hasn't risen in the public consciousness or on the political agenda as much as it should. And if you think it's a problem, it is your responsibility in a way to bring along other people and make them recognize that it's a problem and you should be voting accordingly to put in place the right people who can change and solve this problem. And my last question is just, I know you can't say too much about the role of Bloomberg that you're starting in a few weeks, but anything you want to talk about in terms of the future, either Bloomberg specific or just in general, in terms of how you're thinking about the impact that you'd like to have going forward? Yeah. I mean, I love my job at Quartz. As you said, I got to be able to do long-form journalism and address big technology questions, which I myself wasn't clear on, for example, you know, what exactly happens inside a battery? Why should we, why should we believe this hype that electric cars will be the future? Or as the questions we discussed about carbon capture, whether it's going to be a part of the mix, whether the technology works at all, what happens when you put carbon dioxide under the ground? Those are big, important questions, and I got to answer them, and that was great. I also felt like it was at that point in my career where I understood enough about the problem that I was seeing stories that needed to be told that I alone couldn't tell. And so I am very excited to go into a big newsroom where there will be access to lots and lots of other people who are deep experts in their own fields. Bloomberg has journalists in 120 countries. And so to be able to tap into a reporter in Chile or a reporter in Kosovo who might be able to tell me what's happening with the lithium mine in Chile or the coal plant in Kosovo, and then connect those dots and tell those stories with other people who know their beats much more, but I can try and help them tell the big story. And so I think Bloomberg will be a place to do that, and I am hoping that proves to be true. It's also, I'm excited with the fact that business journalism has not been of as much service to trying to solve climate change as it could have been. Climate problem is such a big problem, but it is also a big business problem because it affects corporations, it affects individuals, it affects personal finance. 
and with the expertise that Bloomberg has covering business news day in and day out and shaping markets, if they can, and that's what the role of this team that I'm going to join will be, shape businesses and how they should be thinking about climate change, it will make a positive contribution towards solving the problem. Awesome. Well, we covered so much ground. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have or any additional parting words for listeners? Uh, no, this is great. I think we've, we've gone in lots and lots of directions. I would say that if you are somebody who cares about climate, go and support a publication, a news publication that does good climate journalism. And I am certain now, 10 years into this job, that there are solid, good journalism publications that are um, doing coverage and good work in this space and they could do with your support. Akshah, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on My Climate Journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note, that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.